Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Ever heard of a popcorn driven robot? This week on Meat and Three, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's, it's how the robots decided that they were going to weight human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcast live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly, exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Sam Klontz, the executive kaiseki chef at Uchu in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Uchu is uniquely and deeply Japanese, despite the fact that Sam trained as a chef almost entirely in the United States. And Uchu opened in June 2017, and Sam earned his first Michelin star in that November at the age of 25. So today we'll discuss how Sam learned Japanese cuisine, how he expresses the idea of kaiseki, his new project Don Wagyu at Wagyu Sandwich Restaurant, and much, much more. But before we start, uh, Japan Eats is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. Really appreciate your feedback. Also, uh, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. You can email us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or kikotema.com. Now let's start a conversation with uh, Sam Kronz. So, hello Sam, welcome to Japan Eats. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, uh, first, uh, let's talk about your background. Um, so, where are you from and uh, what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, I'm from Tucson, Arizona. Um, so, I grew up there the first... Uh, until I turned 18. Um, growing up, uh, it was always my mom was cooking everything. Um, so we had you know, fresh cooked home meals every night. Mm. Um, and beyond that, my whole family cooked. Uh, so aunts, uncles. Um, so I was just surrounded by home cooked food all the mm. time. And that kind of definitely ignited my love of food and seeing how food can just bring people together and 
create that sort of uh, environment. Mm. So, but that doesn't sound like anything, nothing to do with Japanese. No, considering not at all. <laughs> there's, there's no Japanese right. at home. Mm. So, how did you get into cooking? Um, I mean, it definitely, I was always kind of interested in it from young age, seven, eight. Um, started messing around with, you know, started off like making cookies and pies and stuff. Um, and then it kind of turned professional when I was in high school. Um, I was in a, a culinary arts program in my mm. high school. And my uh, instructor was just one of the best uh, kind of teachers I've ever had. Uh, the sort of teacher that I still, I still connect with when I go back home. Um, and he kind of helped me get my first job in a restaurant uh, mm. when I was 15. So, so he, can, he, he saw something in you, interested in... Yeah, cooking. and I mean, he was my first mentor. Mm. Um, so I started out as a dishwasher when I was 15. Um, and then, you know, fairly quickly moved into the, the, the kitchen part of the world. Wow. Uh, so then just through high school, I was working full-time and in, at restaurants and then going to school. And I knew pretty much right away that this is what I wanted to do mm. forever. Right. Well, by the way, where, which school did you go to? Uh, I went to uh, ICE, so mm-hmm. Institute of Culinary Education. Right, in New York. Yeah. Oh, that's how you got into the city of New York. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, so, um, the after you came to New York, um, where, where else did you work? You, had, uh, you graduated from ICE and then... Yeah, so I mean, I started in Tucson working in restaurants, and then I decided I wanted to move to New York. Um, to work in the best restaurants in the world. Uh, mm. So I was working with the Ritz-Carlton in Tucson, wow. and I used them to transfer out here to New York. Mm. Um, and I was working there while I work, while I went to school at ICE. Um, and then for uh, my externship, I ended up securing a spot at Chef's Table. Mm. Um, and that's where kind of the Japanese... Uh, I got exposed to it mm. there the most. Right, well, Chef's Table, meaning uh, the Brooklyn Fair. Yes. Chef's, chef's Table at Brooklyn Fair, yes. which has a three-star Michelin. Yes. And uh, you were there for five years? Since Correct. 2012. So um, I, I've known Cesar for a long time. He's mm-hmm. a very um, intensely, passionately. Very much. Yeah, like he, he's a born-to-cook kind yeah. of person. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what did you learn from uh, Cesar? I mean, just being around him was always inspiring. Um, I got the chance to work in a three mission star restaurant and work with the chef every day. Mm. Um, he had a kind of dedication that I don't, you don't really see at many other restaurants where he's there every day cooking mm. day in, day out. doesn't take a day off. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I obviously learned how to cook very much from him, but I think it was the, the outer things that I learned from him that were the most valuable, the, the attention to detail, seeing that it's not just, Everything that it takes to basically create the experience. Mm, right. And uh, as far as I understand, he has a Mexican heritage, mm-hmm. but so into Japanese yeah. cuisine, right? So how did he utilize the Japanese elements in his kitchen? I mean, he had his, he has his own um, past of working with Japanese chefs and getting his own experience. Um, so when I, by the time I was working with him, all the, all, almost everything we got was from Japan. Uh, all the fish came from Skiji Market, Japanese Wagyu, all the ingredients. I mean, it was very uh, Japanese-French mm-hmm. focused. Right. And uh, technique-wise, he, he used uh, any... Um, I think it's a, a blend. Definitely 
classic French cooking, mm. but some Japanese stuff in there as well. Mm. Okay. Um, which I think is going to be we were discussing soon because you're a Kaisek chef. Right. So, right. Okay. And uh, so, um, you know, this the chef's table uh, at Brooklyn Fair is interesting, right? Because it's three Michelin starts mm-hmm. and uh, that attention and the course menu, the structure, to me that was very Kaisek-y. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and he has a strong focus on um, ingredients, mm-hmm. not like sauces or... Right. It's so, um, protein-focused. Mm, right. So that's the thing, the focus on the best ingredients. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that's really found when I eat your dishes, too. Right. Anyway, so um, so when you are at the, uh, the chef tables at the Brooklyn Fair, you are also uh, in charge of the front of the house at some point? Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say in charge, yeah. um, but I got th- I got the chance to uh, work front of house for a few months, mm. um, and it was a, a great opportunity for me because I got to see everything else that goes into restaurants. Mm. Um, it's not just the food that's on the plate; it's the hospitality that you receive. It's it's so much more than just the food. Mm. So I've never been a chef, <laughs> so I can't see from point of your point of view, but. You cook on the plate, and the end goal for you is mm-hmm. just done, right? And move on to the next production of right. the dishes. So what did you see, though? Like, you're, you're serving? Mm-hmm. Well, you, I, got, I got to have the, you know, personal interaction with the guests mm-hmm. um, and see even more that, that feeling that you, someone gets when you cook for them, um, which, I mean, for me, it's I've really realized throughout the years that that's why I got into cooking, mm-hmm. is to cook for other people. Oh. It's not something that I would never cook for myself at home, but if I have someone else to cook for, I'm very happy to do it. That's mm. that's where my passion comes from. Ah. It's for creating for other people. Mm. Sounds like your family environment, exactly. cooking for each other. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Right. So um, I'm sure that the, those sophisticated diners at the Brooklyn Fair, mm-hmm. I'm sure they asked you questions. Yeah. And, and, and since I was, um, you know, I had the kitchen background, I had answered any question they might have about the food mm. because I made it as well. Right. Yeah, I really appreciate that because one time I went to a fancy uh, Chinese restaurant mm-hmm. and the uh, restaurant has a great system. Once a week, cooks come out and serve a server. Mm-hmm. And I had so many questions. And then usually, let me just ask the chef. And the server comes yeah. back and it's like the, the point of the question was missed or something. Yeah. But that was precise and mm-hmm. uh, I became a big fan of the restaurant too, so I think it should happen more often. Definitely. Right. Okay. Um, so um, the it, it's really um, the experience of serving in a dining room, and then nowadays there's a division, right? Like all the tipping service mm-hmm. aspect, who should be get paid or things like that. Do you have any idea about that? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's definitely it's a hard question these days um, mm. I I don't know if there's an answer um, but I think everyone needs to make a wage that they can afford to live um, and traditionally cooks have been very underpaid for how many hours they work and how physically demanding emotionally draining the job is that sometimes you're living in an apartment with five other people just to get by so that you can afford to work at your job mm. I- so, I think slowly, gradually, it's changing. Yeah, it is. Right. Um, 
it's equalizing a little bit mm. between the front and back house, which I think is a positive direction. Right. Because without food, there's no restaurants. Exactly. So it should be treated yeah. more fairly. Right. Okay. And uh, so you completed your training uh, in a way at the Brooklyn Fair. And you spent some time in Japan uh, dining and staging to focus um, your inspiration. Mm -hmm. So uh, where did you work and how did you uh, find the staging? position um through um a friend that i had um his son was working in kyoto uh living there and studying and he kind of uh, befriended a chef at a restaurant kichisen mm. which was a three-star very very traditional kaiseki restaurant um and he helped me first secure a reservation there so i could eat and then also <laughs> uh stage in the kitchen for mm. a bit right so, did you find any difference between, you know, there are many kaiseki restaurants outside mm -hmm. of Japan, but what's the difference did you find? Um, in terms of, like, the kitchen and how it operated, um, it felt very familiar. Mm. That even though they were speaking Japanese, obviously, and I'd, there was no, there was a, a huge language barrier, it was still language of a kitchen that we could communicate. Mm. Um, so, it was kind of, it was just interesting to see that that, uh, kitchen language exists all over the world. Mm. Not just New York kitchens are not that it's run the same in Japan, but it's there's a lot of similarities mm. in terms of just knowing and reading and anticipating. Because um, uh, the object uh, objectives are the same. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> create the perfect yeah. flavor. Yeah. Right. But I'm curious though. The kitchen configuration is mm -hmm. it very different from Japanese kaiseki and the French kitchen. Um, well, the, at Kichisen, what I got to see was, it was still broken down very similar, where there were stations, and each station was re responsible for certain things, and they all came together to create mm. the dishes, which is essentially the same as the French brigade system. Hmm. Right. And, uh, Japanese kitchens are known for very conservative, traditional. Did you see any, <laughs> anything? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I could tell that the chef was definitely a very, uh, a uh, strict person. Mm. Um, I, they told me that he had the nickname of the General of Kyoto because oh of how he ran his kitchen. <laughs> um, but everyone there was very happy to be there and gaining that experience that you only get from working with a master. Mm, right, because it's a highly uh, uh, recognized restaurant. It's mm -hmm. a Michelin. Mm -hmm. right. um, yeah, so what kind of menus uh, did they serve at uh, the Kichisen? Um, I mean, it's the most traditional kaiseki that I've experienced. Mm -hmm. um, they have some private rooms, and then they also have one counter as well. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, coursed out, very seasonal things. You know, the chef goes out and gets his ingredients for that day, and that's what he cooks that night. You mm. know, he's, he's the one driving the van to go pick stuff up, and then he comes back with the vegetables and the, the seafood. And, oh, wow. Yeah. Mm. So the fact that you trained in, in Kyoto is probably ideal because they're full of places to yeah. get those ingredients yeah. by yourself right okay and uh so as a diner uh did you dine at uh, each like private rooms um at there i only dined at the the counter mm. um and then at some other restaurants there i, I did some dining some private room dining mm. just to see that style of service as well right yes well I, th I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh you know for listeners who've never been to japan and hopefully <laughs> uh dine 
at those traditional places, what happens, you know, in the private dining room? It's not like private dining room in the States, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have to make a reservation separately and for the group. But I think private dining room in Kyoto restaurant or any kaiseki formal restaurant, it's like a one-room theater. Yeah, each your reservation for the table just happens to be a private room. Mm. Um, and just the, the style of service is so beautiful, I would say, that the way they walk in and present the food and you know removing the slippers before they come in and bowing when they leave it's it's it was just beautiful to observe mm, and the kimono clad yeah and then the bow yeah yeah, yeah. um then one thing i really feel strongly about that service in that setting private room it's the full of respect respect mm-hmm. to um customers and chefs and ingredients mm-hmm. and almost revered Ingredients are respected for yeah. the season. It's so much effort going into what you're about to eat, mm-hmm. and the focus is on that very much. Right. And uh, sometimes I feel guilty because you're treated like king or queen, <laughs> but uh, they have uh, definitely a strong professionalism. Yeah, and you never feel too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. They still make you feel at home, that you're not out of place, mm-hmm. even though you very much are. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's kind of like a trip to somewhere. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So, listeners, whenever you've been to those uh, private kaiseki <laughs> place, please. Because usually it's called Ryote. Ryote has uh, private mm-hmm. rooms and then sometimes garden within mm-hmm. that facility. So, it's expensive, but it's a lifetime <laughs> experience. Definitely. Right. Okay, and uh, so I'm sure you dined out in other places in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. So do you have any memorable dinners at certain restaurants? Uh, There was another one called uh, Mizai, Mm. um, which was uh, just so over the top with, they just threw everything at you, but it was all perfectly done, gorgeous, but like so many things on a plate, just highlighting the season perfectly. Mm. Mm. So did you see the difference between um, the you the place you dined out and that place like specific uh, sequence or the style of the dinner? I think you saw more um, the chef's stylistic differences, mm. where they were both kaiseki, both representing the flavors of the season, um, but one maybe had a, a cleaner approach and one had more abundance. The mm, composed. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So, which one did you like? <laughs> uh, I don't think I can answer that. Mm. It's just, it's two different experiences. Right. I think that my question is more about which style you prefer on your dishes. Uh, I would say the cleaner style, the mm. more simple. Right. Kind of expected you say that because <laughs> I saw it. <laughs> we'll discuss about your plates later. Um, okay. So, any other restaurants you. you- um. And then there was, I, I had another friend that kind of uh, took me around Kyoto for a few days. Um, and his father actually has a, a two-star restaurant uh, at Sushi Nakahigashi. Mm. So he took me around Kyoto, which was uh, very generous of him. And he took me to places that I don't know the name of and I could never find again. Mm. Um, there was one soba restaurant that like blew me away that still, it was like a six-course soba lunch. Wow. Just focus on buckwheat and... Wow. In the like middle of summer, it was just perfect. Mm, right. That's energizing, cleansing, yeah, and cooling, yeah. the, and warming. Like the cold dashi is just great. Right. 
Yeah, by the way, Nakahiga, she,、um, his son、mm-hmm. <laughs> came、yeah. to the show too.、Uh, yeah. yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. But Nakahiga is of the most, uh, uh, the greatest chef known for foraging. Yeah. Right? Yeah, And yeah.、Uh, his restaurant, I think, is very hard to get to. I've never been, <laughs> not to mention it's hard to get a reservation.、So. Yeah. Right. Okay.、Uh, so now let's talk about、uh, Uchu. So in June 2017, you opened a Kaiseki bar at Uchu. In Lloyd's side with Derek Feldman,、uh, the very, very talented young business restaurateur, and、uh, Frank Cisnells,、mm-hmm. uh, who came into the show on episode 111, 111 and talked about beautifully about Japanese cocktail culture. So,、um, how did you guys meet and、uh, join the project?、Um, so, I met Derek、um, through a friend that I went to culinary school with.、Um, in, in school, there was Uh, Dan Seehoff, he was, we just kind of instantly became best friends.、Um, we just were on the same wavelength, kind、mm. of thought about restaurants and food the same way.、Um, and he's been my friend over the years. And then as I was getting ready to leave Brooklyn Fair,、um, I was looking for the next step. And I, I talked to him, and he told me one of his best friends was opening up a restaurant and was looking for a chef.、Hmm. So I went and I interviewed with Derek, and、uh, it was the first meeting we kind of knew. Like, this is going to work. We f- want the same kind of things. We think about restaurants, how they should be.、Um, we just agreed on everything. Right. Wow. So, and did you have a test of cooking? <laughs> I never did. Really?、Um, yeah. You know, we just kind of trust on each other that he knew where I worked. He knew that we had a mutual friend.、Um, and I never, I didn't, I think I worked for him for about a month before I ever cooked anything for him. Wow. That's、yeah. amazing. Wow. His vision, Derek's、yeah. vision is strong. <laughs> yeah, and you were 24? I was, yeah, 24 at the time. Wow. Amazing. Impressive. <laughs> Congratulations. And uh, so, uh, what is the concept of Uchu? Uchu means、uh, the cosmos or the universe,、mm-hmm. right?、Um, so, I mean, it's on Eldridge and Lower East Side, which is kind of a, you know, an off street. And you're walking through Lower East Side, and then when you step into Uchu, Kind of takes you away to a different world, a different space.、Mm. Um, that's kind of the inspiration behind the name. Right. Kind of transportative to take you away. That happens really. <laughs> Once you open the door, where am I? Right. <laughs> Perfect.、Mm. So,、uh, what menu do you serve at Uchu?、Um, so, I say it's Kaiseki inspired.、Mm. Um, I'm very aware that I'm not a traditional Japanese chef, obviously.、Um, but I was so influenced by what I saw in Japan, and I wanted to kind of recreate that in a way in New York,、um, but make it more approachable to New York diners.、Mm, right.、Uh, by the way,、uh, the Uchu has two sections. One is Kaiseki, where、mm-hmm. you cook, and only eight seat,、mm-hmm. and、uh, kind of like a you know, L shaped bar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. It's kind of like a woody, dark. Yeah, it's a very、um, intimate space. Right. And、uh, so the sushi counter, 10 seats, sushi bar, it's by、uh, legendary chef Eiji Ichimura. The master. Right. <laughs> the master chef. And、uh, yeah, he's amazing.、Um, okay. So,、um, the, how do you describe your, I mean, Kaiseki inspired、mm-hmm. dishes? I mean, the, what's the essence of、um, Kaiseki element and what is not, like your creativity?、Right. Um, so, I mean, I try to follow. General format of Kaiseki in terms of、um, the styles of dishes. 
um, the flow of the meal. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is for listeners who are not familiar. <laughs> right. So I kind of open up with some a dish that is kind of meant to just be very impressive. Um, moving into dashi course, sashimi, um, do like a chopstick rest course, and then some grilled dishes, um, and then finishing with rice, mm. uh, donabe style. Right. Um, so I kind of follow that format, mm. um, but I'm always hyper-seasonal. The menu's changing all the time. Um, whatever is in season, whatever purveyors are bringing in, mm. I try to incorporate. Um, right. I think one, the biggest element of kaisei cuisine is the seasonality. Yeah. So that's really yeah, <laughs> what you is. do. Right. And uh, so this, uh, the kaisei tasting is $200. Uh, 255 255 Yes. And uh, I... Really thought it was so worth it, <laughs> every <laughs> single bite. Um, okay, so the maybe you can tell us uh, some of the signature dishes that you serve at uh, this moment, yeah. this season. <laughs> Definitely, uh, probably the biggest one is the uh, caviar tamaki, uh, the sushi hand roll. Mm. Um, That's the uh, Siberian sturgeon caviar. Yeah. Then you serve at the, the counter. Yeah, uh, so that one's been on since day one, and it, it'll probably always be there. Right. And the generous portion of caviar. <laughs> it's about 25, 30 grams. Mm, right. And then? Um, the other one I do is a, a soft scrambled uh, jidori egg with a golden trout roe. And then that one also has uh, a pickle inside. Mm. So right now, summer, is pickled tomato. Uh, in the spring, I was doing pickled white asparagus. Um, I've done onion. I've done squash. Mm. Kind of what... Whatever little element I can find to make it seasonal. Mm-hmm. So umami, umami, egg umami, yes. and uh, the seasonal vegetable yes. umami. Okay, and uh, so the you know you're talking about the season, but local uh, vegetables. Uh, what do you think is really fascinating? Like you know, versus Kyoto kaiseki ingredients versus here, you are expressing mm-hmm. kind of creating your new own kaiseki, right? So what ingredients do you think is fascinating to you? right now um like right now um i think i mean tomatoes are one of my favorites um they're really great right now eggplant is coming in um squashes are starting yellow squash uh, zucchini fennel um that's kind of what i'm thinking about right now Mm, this season right so how do you utilize those uh, (laughs) for example um, so right now the like the final rice course uh, is all it's vegetarian so it has a, a corn also mm. uh, so grilled corn grilled squash grilled tomatoes uh, eggplant all of that in one final rice dish mm. so it's uh, cooked in mm-hmm. uh, the little like a pot yeah the uh, clay pot mm, right yeah must be really amazing I have to go back <laughs> <laughs> right okay and uh, so in terms of uh, seafood. Do you get them from Japan or no? Um, yeah, I use uni from Hokkaido. Mm. Um, and then other, um, depending on what I'm using at the time. Mm. So right now I'm getting squid um, from Shizuoka. Um, and, you know, I mean, it changes all the time too. Mm. As other fish come in and out of season. Right. Um, Aji is one of my favorites mm. that I'll use when it's in season. Um you know, I, I kind of play by ear. Right. So, Aji, you cannot find anything similar here? Um, not in my opinion. Mm. Not the same kind of uh, delicate flavor that it has. Mm. It's it's a mackerel, so it has 
you know, stronger flavor than most fish, but I think Aji is, uh, I don't know, the way the fat just balances with the fish is mm, Interesting. And uh, in terms of uh, sea urchin, uni, mm. um, you know, to me, Santa Barbara or Maine, they mm. are like, uh, to me, it's like a Chardonnay versus Hokkaido sea urchin is like a Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. So how do you utilize the difference? Do you prefer Hokkaido? Uni, I, right? I do. I think it's the most consistent. Mm. Um, there's sometimes the Maine is very nice. There's a, probably a few weeks in the winter mm. where it was incredible and i was using it then um but when it's not in season it's very much not in season mm. um, i think it's, it's it shows more the the differences okay right interesting um so the i heard that you have a little rooftop garden yeah <laughs> which is yeah what what do you grow um i mean it, it's pretty it's decent sized um so right now blueberries raspberries strawberries uh tomato eggplants Shiro peppers, uh, shiso, kinome, mitsuba, mm. um, spearmint, chocolate Thai basil, uh, sorrel, uh, probably a few other herbs I can't remember right now. Mm, right. Maybe you can explain what kinome is for the uh, listeners. <laughs> uh, kinome is the, um, the, basically the, the, the leaf part of Sancho pepper, mm. which is the close relative of Szechuan. Right, and visually, it's tiny little leaves and yeah. flavor. It gives it like this um, almost electricity, mm. numbingness. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't know I never tried to grow it. Is it easy to grow? Um, yeah, it is. I planted it last summer, um, and it, it sprouted a little bit, and then the 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 branches kind of died in the winter because mm. I didn't. I had no greenhouse set up, um, but then in the spring, it just came back to life. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. I'll try that. <laughs> How did you get the seeds? Um, I ordered online. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, it came from a nursery in Oregon. Mm. And uh, it's been doing great. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So listen, it's kinome. Kinome, kinome. is really... Yeah. Yeah. I would say next yuzu kind of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's amazing. It's, yeah, it has a acidity, like a citrusy to it. Mm. And uh, visually pretty. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Okay, um, so uh, let's take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, the Wagyu Sandwich Restaurant, uh, Don Wagyu, uh, created newly by Sam. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. 
plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the, the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Hatema, and my guest today is Sam Klontz, the executive kaiseki chef at Uchu in Manhattan's Lower East Side. And Sam earned his first Michelin star at the age of 25, only five months after the opening of Uchu. So uh, now you have another restaurant called Don Wagyu, yes. which opened in, in uh, Financial District in June. Mm-hmm. So what is uh, Don Wagyu? <laughs> Uh, Don Wagyu has uh, one focus, and that is uh, Wagyu Katsu Sando. Mm. Um, so we take uh, Wagyu beef, bread it in panko, f- and fry it, mm. and serve it on a sandwich. Right. So Sando is sandwich, mm-hmm. and it's if you go to Japan and find sandwich, people call it something Sando. Yes. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, but the, why did you decide to open it? Um, it's. I mean, it's something that I, I saw and had in Japan, and... Um, I thought it's it's uniquely Japanese, but it would translate well to American appetite. Mm. Um, it just seemed like a, a natural idea. Mm. Right. Um, well, the, for listeners who are not familiar with the Wagyu, uh, let's just uh, talk about the Wagyu quickly. Sure. So what is Wagyu? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, directly translated, it's uh, beef from Japan. Mm. Um, it has more of a, I would say, colloquial... Understanding that it means uh, highest end of Wagyu from, uh, usually Miyazaki is the most common, but from all over Japan. Mm. Um, and it's always on a rated system, uh, A5 being the highest. Mm. Um, right. And uh, it's known for battery intense marbling. Yeah. Uh, highly, highly intense marbling mm. um, and fat integration. Right. And uh, actually, the the ratio of uh, the fat, that's unsaturated fat, mm-hmm. is higher, mm-hmm. so it's healthier. Yes. And uh, I think the melting point, even, mm-hmm. it's lower than mm-hmm. regular. And uh, I looked up, and then the regular American beef has 80, 86 Fahrenheit, and uh, Wagyu can be 70 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> so it can melt in your mouth yeah. and uh, your hand even. Mm-hmm. So, so it's definitely richer, but the creamier mm-hmm. and more flavorful mm-hmm. because of the fat. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, the 
what's on the menu at Donwagi because you have one focus. Right. Um, so we have basically, we focus on three different uh, versions of Wagyu. Um, the, I would say the lower end is uh, a crossbreed. It's Woshugyu. Um, so it's actually grown in uh, on the West Coast. Uh, mm. It's 50% black American Angus. And then it's crossbred with um, Japanese Wagyu. Mm. And then still raised in very much in the Japanese way of uh, diet. So they're trying to create the same kind of mm. marbleization, but crossbred with a, a black Angus. Right. So, um, yeah, the Japanese Wagyu is known for um, really kind of spoiled mm-hmm. <laughs> best ingredients. Yeah. And then sometimes get massage. Yeah. <laughs> drink beer. Right. <laughs> it's not a joke, but seriously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we had a first uh, guest uh, talking about Wagyu. So, mm. right. So, uh, but these are the, the cross uh, Black Angus and the Japanese Wagyu, 50 percent mm-hmm. It's called uh, Washugyu, mm-hmm. right? So, what's a pro- flavor profile? Um, it's, it's, I think it has a bit more of a beefy flavor. Mm. I, I know that might sound. Versus buttery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has a little bit more texture to it as well because mm-hmm. it doesn't have the, quite as high of the fat. Um, but it's, I would say it's much higher fat than most American beef. Mm-hmm. Even if you get the best prime steak, this has more fat than that. Right. More marbling. Mm. Okay. And the second one? Uh, the second one is uh, A5 from Miyazaki. Mm. Uh, we use ribeye. Um, and that's kind of the most um, widely seen Wagyu in New York and all over the country. Mm. Um, it has a super high production um, and very consistent. Mm. Okay. And uh, do you work with a farm from uh, Miyazaki? Um, so that's the, the third beef. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's talk about the third one. Yes. Uh, the third one is Ozaki. Mm. Um, and Ozaki is the name of the farm and it's the name of the farmer. Wow. Um, so he named his own farm after himself. Um, and basically he's a gentleman that takes a lot of pride in what he does um he's trying to take something that's already kind of perfected it mm. and do it even better beyond that um so he has very um he takes things a little bit more serious he does things a little bit differently than other people in the region mm. so most uh, miyazaki wagyu's um bred to about 28 months he goes to 36 months mm. just let them mature a little bit more wow. um he but says, that's a lot of money for farmers right right you, when you would think the sooner you can turn it into profit, the better. But mm. he's willing to take the longer time to get the product. Mm. Um, he says his his diet feed is different as well, but that's all. It's a secret. Yeah, close secrets. <laughs> um, and then his he doesn't work with that many cattle, so he um, he slaughters twenty cows a month. Mm. Five of them leave Japan, and right now we're receiving all five wow. at Don Wagyu. Mm. Wow, it's amazing. So you had a special relationship with him. Yeah. Um, so Derek got the chance to go out to Japan, meet with him, kind of spend some time with him, eat some meals with him, and kind of secure and build a relationship with him so mm. that he knows that all the work that he's putting into his beef is being appreciated somewhere else. Mm. Wow. That's a very um, personal way of networking yeah. <laughs> with the farmers. Yeah. Right? Because you have to convince the person it's going to be utilized the best way. Right. Right. That we're going to treat it with as much respect as we can, not just, I don't know. Mm, so, no waste. Yeah. <laughs> respect. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, so, the who come to Don Wagyu? What kind of customers? Um, I mean, so we are loaded, uh, located in the heart of financial district. 
So we get plenty of, you know, Wall Street workers. Mm. Um, but we get, you know, all sorts of New Yorkers coming to see. Even tourists are already coming in. So. Mm. Right, because I think uh, Japanese sando, the mm-hmm. sandwich, is a little different, different, right? So the bread, I heard, is a kind of Japanese-style bread. Yeah, so it's, it's traditionally a Hokkaido-style milk bread. Um, we use a, a pandami, which is very similar. It's mm. basically a very milky brioche. Mm. Um, so we're using that from Balthazar. Okay, right. So what's the uh, texture-wise, it's more f- kind of fluffier? Yeah, very fluffy, kind of spongy, mm. light, not distracting from the, the wagyu. Mm. So it doesn't uh, uh, distract the, the mouthfeel of the beef. Right, yeah. Right. It probably absorbs the juice, mm-hmm. the meat juice. Right. Okay, and what kind of uh, sauce do you use? Uh, we use tare. Um, so it's a sauce that we make, um, has onions, ginger, garlic, soy, mirin, sake, and vinegar. Mm. So that's the king yeah. <laughs> classic. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, what's the reaction to um, your, the sando? Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, so f- there's definitely sometimes a little sticker shock, um, but people who know what they're paying for and know what Wagyu really is and what it can be, mm. um, they're very happy with it. Right. So maybe it's a good timing that you opened because Wagyu is known mm-hmm. and not known as a sandwich. Right, exactly. Right. If we, I mean, if it opened ten years ago, before Wagyu had the kind of craze it's having right now, it would be a different story, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because you're making Wagyu more accessible, mm-hmm. approachable, right? Because yeah. you don't have to go to uh, the steakhouse or expensive. Yeah, you don't need a reservation. You can walk in, order it. You can get it delivered soon. Right. Yeah, I think uh, you know, Wagyu is still premium uh, in many places, and uh, there's a Hida region in mm-hmm. Japan and uh, Hidagyu mm-hmm. is one of those Wagyu yeah. brands and uh, so there's uh, Hida Takayama that area and there's one shop and uh, it's just like casual takeout mm-hmm. place there's a long line because they have a um, nigiri of mm-hmm. Wagyu and I think it's like 7 to 8 to 10 like depending on the grade mm-hmm. and uh, you don't have to eat a lot of it yeah so it's the same idea, your sando and, uh, you know, the nigiri, mm-hmm. sushi style wagyu. You feel satisfied. It's kind of addictive. You learn about it. You look forward to eating it more. So that's a good way to educate people about wagyu. Yeah, so, okay. So are you planning to expand the uh, wagyu? <laughs> the wagyu? Uh, I mean, there's always talks about it, but um, nothing, nothing in the works right now. Just mm. kind of focus on... We're still new. It's only been open a month, and okay. we want to make sure it's still running perfectly. Right. And uh, if you want to expand, you have to convince Ozaki-san to sell more cows. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? It must be already hard. To... Okay. So, yeah. So, what's your plan? Other than don't like you, you're going to do Uchu um, differently or something? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll always be at Uchu. Um, it's, you know, kind of my little project that I... I'm very involved with, um, but we're always looking for new things. Mm. Um, you know, I'd love to keep growing and expanding and opening up other places. Mm. Right. So I can always, if I, if you, you know, our listener is a customer at Uchu, mm-hmm. uh, they can always see you right, at the contest. Yes, yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you have a very good smile. So I, <laughs> I recommend uh, customers and the listeners to go to Uchu. All right. So where can we find your updates online? Um, I'd say on, on social media, mm-hmm. um, Uchu's Instagram, mine, Don Wagyu. 
Okay. All right. So thank you for joining us today, Sam. Thank you so much. Yeah, so good luck. Thank you. All right. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or akikatayama.com. And Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. And the engineer today is David Tatashore. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>